Thanks for pressing play. There are scams, crimes, and frauds. And then there's what Bernie Madoff did. CNBC said that he committed the nation's biggest investment fraud. The Wall Street Journal called it, quote, the biggest Ponzi scheme in history. At sentencing, Judge Denny Chin called Madoff's crimes, quote, extraordinarily evil. Many people lost everything they had. You see, Madoff stole $19.5 billion. And he lied and said that had grown to $64.8 billion, when in reality, not a single dollar, not a penny, was ever invested in anything. Madoff stole it. And there were countless suicides as a result of Madoff's evil crime, including Mark Madoff, his oldest son. Our guest today is Jim Campbell, and he has written one of the most important business books in a decade. Fortune magazine says, quote, Madoff Talks will likely stand as the authoritative source on this massive crime that impoverished thousands of investors around the world. What you are about to listen to is a deep, shocking, riveting dialogue, and we go through pretty much all of it, including the systematic problems and failures with the U.S. regulators, including the massive ongoing failure and fuck-up of the Securities and Exchange Commission. We get into how Madoff did it, how he got away with it for decades, and pay close attention to Jim's belief based on the facts that he uncovered about whether or not Ruth Madoff, his wife, and his two sons were in on the scam. You see, Jim had a direct correspondence with Madoff from jail, over 400 pages from him, and Jim fact-checked all of it. As a matter of fact, Jim dedicated 10 years of his life to writing this book. And what you're about to hear is almost everything he learned. This is an extraordinary, special episode with a legendary guy. And this is the longest public dialogue Jim has ever had about Madoff. And I'm here to tell you, every second is riveting. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, the number one real dialogue podcast for business people who want to go deep with some of the most legendary minds of our time. And we are brought to you by my good friends at NetSuite, the world's number one cloud business system. Visit netsuite.com slash different today. That's netsuite.com slash different. And my good friends at Splunk are the leaders in data to everything. Visit splunk.com slash d 2 E. Splunk.com slash D2E. And I want to tell you about Malibu Milk, spelt with a Y. You see, Malibu Milk is the world's first organic flax milk, and I love it. Check them out at Malibu Milk with a Y uh, dot com. And now, as Joy Ramone said, hey ho, let's go. So, Jim, I'm very excited to meet you. Thanks for joining. Uh, it's my honor to uh, be on the opposite coast and uh, talk about Madoff Talks with you. Thanks for having me. Uh, I can't wait to dig into it. You know, at first, I want to thank you for the book. It is a stunning piece of work. And uh, just given the nature of it, the years it took, uh, I can't even imagine the effort that you put into it. 
Yeah, well, as you as you know, it started in 2011 when I first talked to Andy and then Ruth and then Bernie, and we're now in 2021, and it's been out for two weeks or something. So it hasn't been a you know a full time obviously during that whole period, but it's a long period of time. And Harry Markopoulos is the big whistleblower. We share one trait: we're both too dumb to quit. <laughs> Well, and so maybe that leads me to maybe an obvious question, but why dedicate such a huge portion of your life to uh, Bernie Madoff, to Ruth Madoff, <laughs> the family, and ultimately bringing this, bringing this book to the world? Well, you know, uh, first off, it was totally fortuitous that it even happened because I was doing a uh, radio show uh, interview with Lori Sandell, who wrote a book the family had uh, cooperated with. And she, for some reason, said, if you want to do some prep, I'll, I'll hook you up with Andrew Madoff directly off the record. The day before I was on, the show was live. Then we had a great conversation. I asked him tough questions. He said, Jim, I'm going to listen tomorrow live to see that you're saying the same stuff you're saying with me. After that was over, coincidence number two, his mother was moving from Florida to Old Greenwich, where I live here in Connecticut. And I said, I'd take her to lunch, took her to lunch very open. She looked like she was starving. She ate her chef's salad like ravenously, but she was wide open to talk about anything. And then we, as we walked out, I said, could we have a picture? And she says, you're wired, aren't you? And stopped. But after uh, she was confident that I didn't, she hooked me up with Bernie. So now I'm talking to Bernie Madoff. And the next thing I know, over several years, I have 400 pages of communication. So I figure you got to do something with 400 pages. I've never written a book or anything. And I obviously want to vet whether how much of it is lies or not. The trouble is um, you, you have to have a book contract. I can't, as a hobby, go out and investigate Bernie. So we, I had to get an agent, had to get a book contract. The first agent wasn't even successful in selling it. Second agent sold it within one week. And um, so you, you're now talking several years, uh, the gap to get an agent. Now I've got to go do all the investigative stuff. And that's how it all, all adds up. The other thing is, um, Chris, I had three objectives here. One was obviously Bernie. How, why, when, how did his mind operate? Uh, the second piece, which is nobody has put together, is the architecture of the whole failure, which was essentially not Bernie acting alone, but the whole system basically enabling him from willful conspirators to unwitting. And no one had put that together. And then, of course, the third one, um, no independent media source had made a determination. Did the family know? What did Ruth know and Andy and Mark? And I'll tell you, even at the end of my research, the FBI believed that they did know. But in Chapter 8, I reveal my own investigation uh, results, which, which I did. So I had, you know, those three motives. And, and the mission to expose the failure of the system is the real takeaway from the book. People are interested in the sexy part, right, which is Bernie talking. What did Ruth know? You know, what did Andy do? How the heck he get away with it? Which is all really fascinating and even riveting stuff. But the takeaway is this is what's happened. And this is how it happened. And it's pretty scary. Well, and it, am I remembering this right? It went on for roughly 40 years. Is that right, yes. Jim? Yes. You know, um, you know, Bernie always maintained it started in 1992. That was his big date with me. He would never move off of that. And of course, that's the first year the SEC did their first of five investigations, uh, which they failed to uncover the Ponzi scheme. Um, but yes, that is, you know, perhaps the most unfathomable Bernie part is how he built one of the most ethical, 
successful businesses on Wall Street worth three billion dollars at one point, and yet at the same time was building this criminal enterprise um, on different floors of the same business. It's you know it's just probably the, the most unfathomable part of me trying to figure out how the heck and why the heck he did that. Yeah. Now, if I could go, uh, I, I want to dig into the whole story with you if we can. Okay. Um, but on the failure of the regulation, the less sexy part, I, I, my mind goes there too, Jim. Um, and when you hear about the SEC doing four investig- uh, five investigations, five. and they exonerated him, obviously. Yep. And you tell the story early in your book about, is it Frank Casey? who yes. uh, you report figured out in four minutes is, is what, I, yeah. what my notes say. Is that right? Yes. And so how do you have investigators at the SEC do five investigations, find nothing, and one guy in four minutes says, hey, this is bullshit. This guy's running a scam. Yep, yep. You know, it, it, and the, 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 it's interesting the way the book ended up being structured. Um, I have in the same chapter the whistleblowers um, figuring it out so quickly. And, 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 and really, Frank, within five minutes could see it, couldn't do what he was saying he was doing. And Harry Markopoulos, who's the hero that everybody knows of, in under two hours on a spreadsheet, he proved it didn't work. Uh, And then side by side, those stories are the bungling of the SEC. The basic thing is that Bernie brilliantly exploited the silos in the SEC. Now, what does that mean? That means that Ponzi schemes are easy to detect if you know how to look at them. And if he'd had investigators that know how to look at the investment advisory business, which is which is um, hedge funds and mutual funds, they would have been able to know how to look at that. But he didn't register as that. He covered up that he was a hedge fund manager. It was hidden behind locked doors on that 17th floor. So he only got what's called broker-dealer examiners, right, following trades, making sure that the security side was legitimate. And they always found it was completely legitimate. Every single trade could be traced. And remember, he's not doing any trades in the phony business, but every single trade in the legitimate business could be traced. And that's all they did. They thought he was doing front running. Front running means, Chris, you've just ordered 100 shares of IBM. I'm your market maker. I know you're buying. I know that's going to help the price. I just jump right in line in front of you and I get a small little benefit because I know behind me you're going to be buying. That's illegal. And uh, but they thought, you know, Bernie's running a market maker and he knows the market. So what he's doing is he's doing this little ticks all the time. And that's how he's always making money, except he never did front running. He built his systems, in fact, to block front running uh, because he kept that first part of the business clean. So the um, SEC didn't have the right examiners on. They kept exonerating him for the wrong crime, which was front running. And the final piece of it was. The examiners were never allowed to talk to anybody in the firm but Bernie and, and Bernie's right-hand man, who we call the chief fraud perpetuating officer, Frank D. Pascali. He wasn't even really talking to the compliance people, which was his brother. They would see him briefly. Now, no other firm on Wall Street has the CEO sitting down with examiners, who are often very junior folks. So he blocked them. He, he took advantage of the silo. And... They um, kept investigating the wrong, the right, they chased the wrong rabbit. And look, I'm no investigator, of course, uh, but you would think one of the sort of core tenets they teach you at how to be an investigator school is 
Uh, go talk to a bunch of people. When somebody tells you, so, I mean, you, you talk about it in your book. You talk, you talk about the sort of verbal contract or agreement you made with Bernie, which is to say, hey, I want to hear everything you have to say. But just so you know, I'm going to go validate and verify all of this. And like I said, I'm no investigator, but my guess is the way you do that is you talk to a bunch of people and then you look for supporting documentation and, and so forth and so on. And so how is it possible, even though they were looking for front running and never found it, right, right. that they didn't say, well, hey, um, we want to talk to some other people around here and maybe we want to we do that without you in the room? Yeah. You know, it's a great question because of the fact that the SEC also at that time, and this is crazy, didn't believe in third party authentication, right? For instance, one of the ways they could have found that in five minutes is the DTC, which is the Depository Trust Clearance Company. Every, all the settlements and, and securities, um, the, mar, the collateral agreements, everything, all go through one central source, right? So that's obviously where you can trace if trades go by. And by the way, his market-making business, every trade could be spotted through that. He gave on a Friday night the SEC examiners, his DTC account number, which is 0646. Five-minute phone call would have said, we don't have any investment advisory account for Bernard L. Madoff Investment Securities. They didn't make the phone call. This is also equally bad. They drafted numerous examinations letters saying, we want the following trade documentations. And then they didn't mail the letter because they were so afraid of being overwhelmed with 500,000 trades, how they would even get through it. So they didn't even mail the letters. Another one, that talk about the post office, Bernie would say, oh, my trades are going on in Europe. So you won't see them in the exchanges here in the U.S. So you got to go over there to find them. And um, by the way, here's some numbers of banks and counterparties, which he made up, or they were false uh, contacts within the banks. And he thought, that the SEC people were not allowed to make international phone calls <laughs> so, and they never called. So I don't know if that was true or not, but maybe they didn't know. know how to do the, uh, you know, plus zero, whatever. Yeah. And they just didn't know how to make international phone calls. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so it's, it's, pre- it is, it is. And you know, the silos again, they sent, um, you know, I told you Harry figured it out in two hours. The, the, in DC, they have an office that does this kind of looking to see if strategies work or make sense. And they also figured out in pretty quickly that it didn't make sense, but somehow it didn't get communicated to the examiners on site. On one examination, the SEC had two units in there from different, from Washington and from the regional branch, and the SEC didn't know they were both there. Bernie told them they were both there. It's so crazy. You can't make this up. And, and of course, I got a, a facetious question for you. Uh, how many people at the SEC have been fired about this? Yeah, that's a good question. The report, by the way, the SEC Inspector General report is an excellent report, not censored. So you got to give them credit, except they issued it on Labor Day weekend, Friday night um, at the end of the media. Eight people were demoted at the SEC, none of the management level. And by the way, on some of those exams, the management blocked them from going forward. So, yeah, nobody was penalized. This is the thing that disgusts me about our um, justice system or lack thereof in our country, whether it's nobody getting fired or, frankly, sued at the SEC. Uh, You know, the CEO of Boeing never gets fired. The CEO of uh, uh, Volkswagen, when they do their scam, never gets fired. The CEO of Wells Fargo doesn't get fired. It just it boggles the mind that um, these people who are supposed to 
keep us safe. That's their one job. Uh, when they don't do it, you know, suffering exactly. a demotion, really? And, you know, you I have to say you're the first uh, interview that has started from the systemic failure, which, as you say, is the big scary deal, or, or which I feel is. And uh, so it's very interesting that you've gone there first. Another thing the SEC does, you talk about penalties, that really bothers me is, okay, Chris, I caught you on, um, I'm sanctioning you on something you've done illegally. What you And you say, yes, okay, I'll pay the million dollar fine, but you don't even admit guilt. It says there's no admission of guilt. And that to me is completely unacceptable. It's disgusting. I've seen it my whole career. I've been an officer and director of multiple public companies throughout my career. Uh, I have had some uh, dealings with SEC, the SEC, including an invest, in investigation of a, of a company I was an officer in, and um, I just don't understand it. And 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 I don't understand why there isn't more outrage about this part of it, Jim. The the failure of you know the FAA who was in the pocket of Boeing, right? And and yeah. here the failure of the SEC. Were they just smoked because he was the the you know, he was the chairman of NASDAQ for a while and he was this yes. character and, you know, you've written about and talked about how charismatic he is and clearly he's an incredibly intelligent guy. And yep. so they just bought the whole smokescreen? Um, you know, he, he he ran, if you use that mafia analogy that I use, he ran the legitimate business like the front of the restaurant and it was totally clean, right? Uh, FINRA, which is supposed to be the oversight body, they didn't even they weren't even allowed to investigate an in, in investment advisory business. So he ran NASDAQ, which FINRA was a spin out of. So they were in bed with him. I mean, I found it outrageous that FINRA said all their new examiner uh, examiners newly hired in their orientation to Bernie's office. Because that was the model of what, a, what an office should look like. So right off the bat. And, and by the way, they put lousy. I mean, that's unfair. They put junior examiners on his case. You know, so that they weren't going to get, he wasn't going to get looked at too closely. They ran in the orientation because they, his his office looked like a Hollywood set of what an office, because he was very OCD. Every computer angle uh, of screen was at the same angle. Everything was black and silver. Everything was aligned. You couldn't leave any paper on your desk at the end of the day. You couldn't have anything but a black and silver uh, photo frame on your, so it looked like it was a Hollywood set. And then he would come in with this avuncular. He's not Mr. Um, Gordon Gecko. He's a low-key Jewish grandfather type. And um, it all kept the front of the restaurant looking clean. The two boys were out front, completely oblivious to what was going on on the 17th floor. They were there to keep it looking good. And then downstairs, all this bad stuff was going on, and no one, no one even knew the 17th floor existed. It's shocking. And the fact that people haven't been fired is absolutely disgusting. <laughs> now, the interesting thing is, in addition to that part of the disgusting, if, I, if I'm tracking this right, Harry was raising his hand all the time to uh, the federal government saying, hey, wait a minute, something's wrong here. Something's wrong here. He did that for years, did he not? Yes. First off, they thought Harry, uh, let's be first, they didn't know what the hell he was talking about. He was way over their head. Harry is the kind of guy that, you know, that comes in and say, Chris, this isn't working right. And two minutes later, he's on the third derivative of calculus, and you have no idea what he's fucking talking about. And it's, you know, it's obviously his genius, but, and, and you know, these guys had no, they had no clue what he was talking about. The other piece of it was they thought that Harry, and this is true, that Harry's firm was competing against Bernie's firm. So this was just bad bones competition, that he was just in here trying to sink Bernie and that, you know, he was a, he was a, you know, 
didn't like competing against Bernie because he was losing to him. Uh, but, the, the, to you know, when somebody look, I got thrown out of school at 18 for being stupid. I'm not the smartest guy around. But when somebody says something I don't understand, I just say something like, well, hey, Jim, um, could you explain that to me a little bit? I mean, yeah. isn't that what people do? I, I, it just seems it boggles the mind that whether it was the investigations themselves or Harry beating the drum for yeah. so long that it all just he was able to just look how about, the part. How about and, the fact that this blows me away? SEC Boston then didn't talk to SEC New York. They hated each other. It was like the Red Sox and the Yankees. So handoffs, Bernie's office was in uh, New York and Harry was in Boston. And like the handoff never really happened. It's just you know, bizarre. Insane. So if, if you now, of course, I've, I've dug, dug deep into your book, but I'd love for you to walk me through some of this. Let's just frame this fraud, the number of people the amount of money. Let's just sort of frame the damage from the perspective of victims. Okay. About $19.5 billion represents the amount of money the total investors put in as principal. Now, remember, some of that would have been 40 years before. So, you know, $19.5 billion is a long way from what they thought they had. Now, at the end, in that December of um, 2008, the, the, if you added up the fake statements, they were $64.8 billion or $65 billion bucks. That's what they thought they had on their statements. Now, you and I, when we, when we see a statement from Merrill Lynch, we believe it. You know, the, uh, the regulators say, well, this was a Ponzi scheme. We don't recognize that. Oh, okay. Well, I thought you were there to protect me, Sipic. But now the people, there were 6,000, about 6,000 domestic investors, some, around as many as 720,000 abroad, where the feeder funds were really going through banks, which was a different structure than the hedge funds in the US. So a lot of it was covered up because the banks didn't want to admit they were doing a lot of law money laundering. So they found a way um, to make the investors closer to whole. So it never really got as exposed uh, to the same degree. But in any event- 720,000 um, international investors. In, in international investors is I mean, yes. That's a shocking six, number. Six, the whole thing is shocking. One of the points that I, I hope is coming out of this and what you're drawing is that people really understand very little of what they think they know all about, that this was one man behind a curtain doing an evil Ponzi scheme. It's really only touching the surface of this whole story. And, and that's why I hope that what comes out of this is the first definitive account of everything. Well, and it almost makes you wonder... Uh, why hasn't the government, uh, uh, led, of course, by the SEC, done a r radically transparent, uh, full-blown investigation with recommendations for changes that they have implemented that include uh, r radical oversight and radical um, uh, transparency? I mean, I'm, I'm disgusted since the financial crisis has gone down that um, even for those of us who've been in business for a while, who, who think they understand a few things here and there, um, there's a lot that goes on on Wall Street that's a black box. Yeah, um, no, you're right. No one has done that. The SEC did a self-internal investigation, and they made some uh, of how they screwed up. And they were honest about that, at least because the inspector general is supposed to be independent. But isn't um, that like hiring the fox to tell you what's wrong with the well, hen It's kind of, but but I have to tell you, they, they did an honest job. The question is, did they implement it? And they implemented some of it. Um, well, and who nobody, oversees them to make sure they implemented it? 
Uh, that's a good question. That's Congress's job in theory. And um, I guess you could say the SEC commissioner. But, but what this Congress ignores- doesn't understand about business shocks the yeah. shit out of me. I yeah, mean, I don't well, want to get overly political with you. That's a but, whole other topic, too, Chris. No, I mean, as a guy who's been in tech my whole career, when I hear, uh, by way of example, Amy Klobuchar talking about what needs to happen to the big tech companies, she doesn't even understand how, like, I can tell by the way she talks, she doesn't even understand how these companies work at a 30,000-foot level. And it's very clear that, um, look, a lot of these folks, a lot of these lawmakers in Washington, they don't understand how Wall Street works. No, and most of them are bought by Wall Street, too, so they're not going to look too closely. But, but you know, you talk about an overarching investigation. In the first place, the government even ch- chose not to even investigate what I call two, consp- two other huge conspiracies, which is the Ponzi scheme is sitting there, but a lot of people don't realize it was really a domestic tax evasion fraud um, criminal event that his big investors, the famous big four, as I call them in the book, and other long-term ones were really doing wholesale tax fraud and tax evasion. That was not looked at because there was no criminal action taken against these guys. The other one was, as we're talking, all these guys from abroad that were stealing money out of Russia, Eastern Europe, drug lords in Colombia. All that money was funneled in through money laundering to Bernie. No one was pursued for that, and there was no criminal action taken there. So if you're going to investigate yourself but skip two conspiracies to begin with, you know, what are you going to do? Let's just... All that international money laundering yeah. and fraud and all that. Yeah, who Nobody's cares in about jail. that? You know, the, the hedge fund guys, you know, they took Bernie passed on the fees that should have gone to his pocket. So those were huge bribes in effect. These feeder fund guys, not only had they had they have to know that something wasn't right. Bernie, in some cases, was scripting their false answers to the um, SEC. And also every hedge fund guy had to sign a thing with Bernie saying, I delegate 100% of the investment portfolio strategy to Bernie. At the same time, Bernie was saying he had no control over the investment strategy. That's one of the reasons he covered up. He said, all I'm doing is executing trades for them, which is what he did in his regular business. So the hedge fund guys had to know that that was a lie because they were signing a document saying it was a lie. Well, and I I don't know. I I don't (laughs) ever remember in my... Uh, 35-year career, Jim, somebody putting a, a document in front of me where I had to sign that I was going away to... Away all uh, your rights. Yeah. Well, I was going to waive all my rights, and I was going to set, tell the story that you want me to tell. I mean, exactly. Exactly. It's, yeah. it's, and, you know, we were laughing about this, but they are taking other people's money, and their job is supposed to be, well, Chris, you have this investment philosophy. I'm a feeder fund. I have 10 of these funds under me. You belong in fund A. And that's where you should go. I've done due diligence. I pledge that to you. And instead, what they're doing is, well, they really were only going to one fund. In some cases, they didn't tell them it was Bernie to begin with. And then, of course, I'm getting all these fees that um, are obscene. Why am I doing that? Oh, because I'm not asking any questions. Bernie doesn't allow due diligence, by the way. Well, how can you be say you're in the due diligence business when your hedge fund doesn't allow you to do it? And all the, all the time, there's rather innocent people whose money you have. That, you're, that they're trusting you with. And then they're trusting Bernie because Bernie had the images that Jewish T built. Total trust. It, 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 it boggles the mind. Um, so we have $19.5 billion in. Principal value. What percentage of that goes back to the people who put that $19.5 billion in? Okay. Um, so 
Bernie shuts down in December, and their last statement has a thing on it. And they add it, and it comes to sixty-five billion, right? So remember, that's what they think they have. And if you're going to put, if you're going to give your money to Merrill Lynch, right, you want to know that my statement is really my statement. That's what it is. Don't come tell me that. Oh, you don't have four hundred. I, I bought. I'll give you. I give an example. I bought a share of Berkshire Hathaway for fifteen thousand dollars, right? It's now about four hundred thousand. How do you think I'd feel if Merrill Lynch comes and says, well, you know, Buffett's a complete fraud. So we're going to only recognize you as having $15,000 in my account. So you just took away almost all my money because you're saying Buffett was a Ponzi scheme. And that's what they say, even though you're told when you that you have SIPC insurance to protect against fraud. They exactly. don't tell you they don't cover Ponzi schemes because they change the rules on every case. Well, is it the Ponzi covered. scheme? I don't know. I'm not, I'm. Isn't the Ponzi scheme one of the top three to five things we need protection against? Well, not only that, it's a, um, they're they're supposed to say if no end if no investment activity went on or you or you were put into a fraudulent deal, we're gonna we're gonna cover that. And what they end up saying is because there was no investment activity at all, and these were fictitious profits, we can't recognize them. But what they're doing then is saying the industry is not going to stand by what you think you have for money. Even worse, we're going to go after you to get that money back. And so your your statement might not be right. Plus, they may come after your assets. This is this is something that will stun people. This this everybody knows what the FDIC is. The FDIC they're there. If the bank goes down, they will pay you in insurance. What what up to that level? Nobody has ever not got paid back since the New Deal when it was formed. Okay, so it works. And the government has never had to put money into it. It's it's premium paid by the banks. CIPIC is the same thing. Now, CIPIC will fight me on that. They'll say, no, we don't cover the decline of market value of securities. Who doesn't know that? You're not expecting if your stock goes down that CIPIC's going to pay. But that's how they get out of that. Okay, so CIPIC did not. So CIPIC's got that fund that looks like the FDIC. Not one single dime of money from that went to pay back any Madoff investor, not one dime. Money was only a billion six in there, which was, they had been told 16 years ago by the GAO was completely inadequate if a crisis happened. All that money went to the trustee who was uh, in his fee. He got two billion, you know. So what would you, I mean, people don't know this. I, I find it stunning. SIPC is supposed to be my FDC for my stock. They don't. They didn't pay one single penny, and they got. They hired a guy who made two billion dollars, covering his expenses too, uh, to go out and get go after these these people. Well, it's expensive work, Jim. Come on. <laughs> but again, another another shocker, and again another facetious question. So, how many changes have been made in the laws and the regulations and the transparency around uh, the insurance protections we're supposed to have? against fraud and criminal behavior in the securities industry. What they did do is, this will blow you away too, I would think. Um, you know, so banks pay um, their their fees on a risk-adjusted basis, okay? The securities industry, they were charged, they were paying for premiums $150 a year, whether you were Goldman Sachs or a one-man broker in Florida. $150 a year, which is less than the Goldman Sachs pays for flowers in the executive suite every week. So well, that explains why there was no money there. Um, now, they've gone to a size-based charge now that the last time I looked averaged $98,000, right? In other words, 
between the big guys and the little guys. That's $98,000 versus $150. Have they changed the rules on Ponzi schemes or anything? No, not that I know of. So, no. you know, the ultimate question here is, uh, you know, if you consider uh, you and I as, uh, you know, small-time uh, retail yeah. investors, right, uh, like the average American, uh, is the small-time retail investor more protected because of, of what Bernie did? Wow, that's a good question. I would say in, the, in one sense, the SEC is much better at catching Ponzi schemes. Uh, Harry Markopoulos, for one, trained them. They wouldn't talk to Harry, right? When I was talking, they didn't, nobody outside the agency, so they ignored him. But he said they're very good, except he thinks that if you were offshore, you might be able to do another Bernie. Otherwise, he says you're probably 90% going to get caught. So that is a big change. On the rest of the stuff, you know, I don't really, I'm very skeptical. The SEC comes in after the mess is made. They, they're not around right. before or during. They're after the mess, which is too late for you and I. And we can talk about Robin Hood if you want, but because that's a real pet peeve. This is one of the shocking things that I have learned as I've uh, consumed time on this planet, Jim, is <laughs> that uh, law enforcement in many ways is not there, or the government for that matter, more broadly, not there to protect us. They're there to help us clean up the mess. Yep, that's exactly right. And that's right. a shocking realization for many of us, particularly when it comes to our fucking money. And so I go back to the 19 and a half billion. If I was one of the people who put that money in, forget the, what it was almost 40 billion 60, in gains I thought we had. Yeah. 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 60, uh, how much of that 19 billion ultimately ended up back in the hands of investors? Okay. The trustee has clawed back, as he calls it, $14.4 billion, which is unbelievable for a Ponzi scheme where it's usually zero. But remember how he did that. He went to, Chris, you, you were with Bernie. You withdrew more money than you put in over the years, even if you were wiped out at the end, even if you had zero. But over the years, okay, I, Jim Campbell, was with Bernie. I left my money with Bernie. I never took it out. So what trustee did was he came to you and he said, you took out a million bucks over the years between interest and dividends. And um, that was fake money. I want it back. Okay. And then Jim, you're, you lost all million bucks because you never took it out. And Chris's money is going to go to you. And that, that kind of transaction, um, they, they got $14 billion back. The trustee was paid 2 billion bucks for doing that. That money came out of the SIPC fund that money that was supposed to go to you. That's how they paid him. That allows them but not that, only that to That $2 billion came it, out of the victim's money, essentially. It did. What, what, see, what, what, they'll, what the trustee will tell you is, Chris, we got $14 billion back, and I didn't take a dime of that out of the money we got back, which is true. They took it from the SIPC fund, which is supposed to be for customers to begin with. But by saying that, we didn't, you know, we didn't take any money. We, we all went back. But... That money out of the SIPC fund, which could have gone to as well, that's 14% of the take he put in his pocket, which is a big, a huge amount of money. And yeah. $7 billion of that 14 came from one person. And Madoff helped get it back. Right. Right. Can't make it up, can um, And, you know, the, the shocking thing about, about the $2 billion is, you know, where I'm from, that's called lying with the truth, right? It's exactly what it is. It's like a, a, a sleight of hand. Oh, by the way, we didn't take a dime out of all that money. We just took all the money you were supposed to have gotten in that, you know, in that. Th and, you know, Picard would not speak to me. 
And I think it's disgraceful because he's in a public facing customer protection role. And they wouldn't speak because they only want to be covered as the miracle workers that got 70% of the 14, of the 19 billion back. Now, let me give you an example. Jamie Dimon is the CEO of JP Morgan. Now, Picard is viewed as a winner, as successful. and wouldn't talk to me. JP Morgan is, is embarrassingly viewed as having screwed up big time. I went to Jamie, who was in my class at Tufts, um, and I said, will you let me talk to your folks? And he did. And there's no way that he's going to like what I wrote. Picard, who is supposed to be successful, blocked me three times from talking to anybody, although I had sources inside there. Yeah, and um, I guess Picard really, um, it was impressive when he did that three-day testimony at con- in con- Congress to r- really unpack all of this. Is that, was that who you're talking about, Picard, or who? Yeah, I'm being facetious again. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I went right, right over my head, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, you're right, no, exactly. It's, it's he's, not a, he's not accountable. They can just say, hey, you know, here's the, talk to the hand, fuck you. Not only that, what he, what he could do, Chris, you're, you're, you've just lost all your money. All you have left is a $50,000, $100,000 IRA, right? He was going after people's IRAs. He was going to go after your house. He sent investigators over to make sure you weren't living beyond what you were telling. You know, it was, it was abusive. Now, should he have gone after J.P. Morgan and the guys who were guilty? Yes, he tried to. He wasn't allowed to go after banks. But he did go after the bad guys. He did a great job there. But he also went ran over you, you know. And you had you were you might have been ninety years old and had to go back to Walmart to work. The average age of a Madoff investor was seventy eight years old. Wow. And so, if we get back to the victims, do you have a strong sense for you know roughly the number of people who were, if not wiped out, you know, materially damaged uh, as a result of this? I, you know, that's kind of a hard number. I, I think, I think in my mind, somewhere around 15% were in that really moderate $500,000 and below, who should not obviously have been invested with Bernie in, in that, um, in that, in that, in that basis, you can, the number of net losers, you can, you can look up out of the 16,000 was about 3,500, right? So those people were the ones that were wiped out essentially. And, um, Right off the bat, you can see, well, the other 11,000 weren't going to get reimbursed because they were net winners or they were going to get their money clawed uh, clawed back. Um, Picard did have a program that if you were destitute, um, that you could apply for an early uh, clawback and not have to go through the whole process so that you wouldn't be out on the street. And by the way, even with the Madoff family, he was after them for everything. He was not going to, he was going to leave them with money so the children would not be destitute. Hmm. Incredible. So, um, of course, I want to get into the whole story with you, but I, I feel like I, uh, I need to ask you before we get into Bernie and okay. everything around it, in some ways, as I've d- dug into your background, and if this is not how you think about it, tell me how you do. But uh, this journey for you, does it start with Elliot Spitzer? My curiosity or... Well, it seems like your career took a, a an interesting turn as a result of you interviewing Spitzer for the first time. Well, um, it's funny. I hadn't looked at it that way. I was lucky to get Spitzer's first interview um, a month after he left office. So and I, obviously I admired the work that he had done on Wall Street, right? Because the SEC was asleep, okay, AWOL. Uh, Spitzer was the only guy that was in town, the only sheriff. 
Um, and of course, we all know what what you know what happened to him. But I've had a sense to get trust with folks. Um, Dennis Kozlowski is another example, the only person that he's uh, uh, spoken with other than 60 minutes in prison, the only person once he's gotten out. And um, I, so I have a passion, yeah, for seeking out the truth and for getting people that have done bad things to be willing to talk about it. And, um, you know, I, I guess, yeah, I have a, I mean, the, the whole Madoff book is a sense of mission, right? What's the truth? And let's get it out there how all these people that were supposed to be protecting us screwed up. And for whatever reason, whether they were captive, incompetent, bought off, et cetera. So, yeah, if you look at it, I have forensic talk, like time show and business talk, but they overlap a lot, which people laugh about, you know, because it's not, a lot of business guys are in, in, in crime. So I go after, I have a passion on looking at, you know, something like Putin, right? The, the degree of corruption and um, evil and extraterritorial and extrajudicial killing and on and on. I got, you know, I, Bill Browder, when I interviewed him, he was not even, he was in hiding. You know, he didn't even have a public email because Putin was trying to have him killed. That kind of stuff uh, I, I love, you know, I love to get into. Now, my sister told me, and I hadn't really put this together. She thinks I have a great skill at putting the pieces together of tremendous systemic complexity. And if you look at the book, that's kind of what I did. Uh, I wouldn't have really known that, you know, other than that. Um, and, I, and I went after the architecture of this. And I think a lot of people tend to look, you know, more, uh, you know, horizontally at one thing or, or the other. Um, so to see how all the interconnections came apart, um, you know, is something that, that I enjoy doing. Well, and candidly, uh, not to be overly laudatory, but you've written a legendary book, and, and, and to write a book that essentially exposes uh, systemic, at best, incompetence, if not stupidity, with a, a healthy sprinkling of evil, um, and, and to do it in a way that it, it reads, you know, it, your book reads like a fucking, you know, Hollywood movie script, right? Uh, and hopefully they will make it into a movie. That's really nice because it's, it's my first book and you would not believe how badly I floundered when I started. Because first off, in my radio show, my script at most is bullet points, right? Uh, so I'm not writing. And I'm out of college for whatever, 40 years. And they had no clue. They thought that what they wanted was sex, meaning Bernie talking. And I always wanted the story, right? And they had no idea that that kind of a complex story couldn't be done in five minutes and that I had to go vet it. So they had a, an unrealistic timeline and how this could get done. And I didn't know what the hell I was doing. So um, there's a lot of floundering. And then all of a sudden it became fluent. I mean, as you people are telling me that the book they consider riveting and that you know, it flows well. Now, it all does. of that, yeah, all that stuff had to, I had to somehow, it just somehow emerged. I'll tell you how, I'll tell you how freaky it is. I would be writing along and a word would come into my mind that I thought fit the sentence. I would have to look it up because I didn't know what the word was. And damn, if it didn't, if it wasn't the right word. So I think after a while, there's some metaphysics going on. Well, as an author myself, and of course, as somebody who, who, is privileged to spend time with a lot of legendary authors. I know this sounds corny and I know it sounds like I've lived on the West coast too long, <laughs> but there, there is part of writing a book where it's not you writing. It feels like you're channeling the book, like the book's yeah. flowing through you. Right. And I know it yeah. sounds insane, but is that what you're describing? 
Yes. And it's a weird feeling. Now, someone told me, no, what's really going on is those words are in your subconscious. You just forgot them. But the, the fact that a, a word that I could remember was coming in right to fit there was great. And the other thing was uh, that, I, that I would say a lot of fun was they kept trying. The book was too unwieldy for them, right? Didn't they make you cut out an inordinate amount they, of they pages? Made me cut, they made me cut 50,000 words, right? But they conceptually cut it before then. And you know what I did to get around it? They were ten. They cut it to 10 chapters. Okay, so I was going to have a chapter on the whistleblowers, right? And then I was going to have a chapter on the SEC. Oh, you can't do that? I got around it by combining them. And it ended up being even better. <laughs> Just one long chapter. Have, yeah, you, you, exactly. And um, the, the, um, it was even better because I had simultaneously in and out the, the whistleblowers' incredible competence figuring this out and then the Keystone Cops mixed in. So I thought it ended up better by accident. And you're right. It, one and one didn't equal two, right? It equaled three. So it got a little bit shorter, but they got it got better. <laughs> well, then they were doing their job with you. They, 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 they helped me out at the end. They ran there. I give them a lot of credit for hanging in while I floundered, right? So they didn't give up on me. So let's let's go deep on 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 the whole story. And so um, there you are. You have interviewed um, you interviewed Andy first. Is that right? You got to I know talked him. To Andy first. You talked and then to him. yeah, I talked to Andy first, and then over the until up until he died, we talked intermittently, right? And, and how then, old was Andy uh, Madoff at the time you talked to him when you first started talking? Good question. To him? He died in two thousand and fourteen, so I, I'm guessing he was forty something then. Uh, but that's interesting. I don't know. But I, he died in 2014. Remember, I started in 2011. Yeah. Um, so, and he he really grew to trust me. He, he was having experimental treatments for mantle cell lymphoma at one point out in Washington State, and he wired all these wires and stuff. He had a private blog that he gave to his closest friends, and he would he'd send these pictures of them all wired up. He got he let me go into that blog. So I started watching kind of the end of his life. And by the way, this is the character of he and Catherine, who was his girlfriend, right? Um, think about this. Uh, he's trusted me with, in a sense, his legacy, and that I was wide open to do anything I wanted to find out if he was guilty. And so he then he dies, and his wife tells me, not his wife, his girlfriend, he couldn't marry her. He, she tells for me- For legal reasons, right? It, for it, legal it reasons. He was being sued crazy, and everything. Right? Right. Right. He was, um, uh, she was his salvation. She tells me, to the depth of my soul, I don't believe he knew, but if you find it, Jim, I'll accept it, which I found mind-blowing. You know, uh, could you imagine, you know, somebody else willing to do that? Um, you know, so anyway, I, I had communications with him on and off like that, but and then with Ruth, sort of regular lunches and communications and a lot of texting, right? And then Bernie, it was just c consistent, you know consistent letters and long, emails yeah long yeah, letters and emails and so um uh and and when uh, remind me when mark died mark died two years to the day after bernie's arrest what, did he kill himself on the anniversary of his arrest is that right Am anniversary of his right? arrest he hung himself on the uh which would have been 2010 in other words a year before i got involved and then that's one of the parts of the book that i to me gives me chills in the first chapter because Madoff's secretary, who was in the honest side of the business, right, is driving home that night, uh, late at seven or eight, taking a limo service home. And her daughter, Sabrina, calls him, calls her and says she had worked as an intern during her high school years with the boys. So she knew Mark and Andy. 
And she said on that first night, she had just heard he was arrested. She said, Mom, Mark is not going to be able to handle this. He's going to kill himself. That was within hours of the arrest. And two years to the, that exact day, he did exactly that. Wow. And um, how many, remind me, there's been several uh, suicides directly attributed to this uh, evil crime. Uh, off the top of your head, do, do you know how well, many? Well, first been? off, first off, Mark, you know, Mark and Andy both died related to the to the thing. Um, you don't think there's any question that Andy's uh, uh, disease was uh, driven in part by this? Oh, not, I don't have any question because Andy's convinced of it. As you know, he used to tell me. He, he, he says he, it directly to you in the book. He said, he said, Dad said, Dad killed my brother quickly and he's killing me slowly. And I, I would say, Andy, go talk to him once to get closure, even just for yourself. Forget him. And he would say, never. He's dead to me. And then and he never course, spoke Bernie to him. Bernie outlived him. Yeah. yeah. And, but Andy never spoke to him again. Is that Never him? spoke a single word to him from leaving the co-op apartment on December 10th in the afternoon, right after Bernie confessed, never said a single other word to him. You know, I, I can relate to that. I understand. It's pretty mind blowing, isn't it? And by the way, remember, you saying you can relate to that. Everybody thought they're guilty. Everybody. And the, you know, down to the FBI, as I say to, when I talked to them two years ago, they just assumed he had to know, but that's what he did. He went right and turned his dad in. And so remind me again, how many other suicides there have been uh, associated with this? Uh, I don't know if there, I, don't, I don't know the exact number, but in the book, we have uh, the sad story of, 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 yeah, of, of Colonel um, Willard Foxton, who fought for the, um, the uh, British Army for like in every single war, which I didn't realize how many they were in or, or us, you know, between two, uh, the 1970s to the 2000s. I mean, you know, the. The Middle East, uh, the Middle East, obviously Afghanistan, Iraq, the Balkans, um, and he was he was wounded in them. Anyway, he retires right around the time that Bernie's thing shut down, and uh, after forty years as a war hero, three weeks after he retires, his entire life savings is wiped out. He was he was so deluded. He was in the fund of what I call the number one money launderer, Sonia Khan, out of the Bank Medici. Bank Medici is a building from 1490. He saw that building. He said, this is unbelievable. This is a sturdy 500-year bank, except that it wasn't her, her bank then. She formed her bank in uh, 1995. And it was, you know, and she ran, she ran the Ponzi, you know, head feeder fund for them. But that's a very sad story. He, three weeks after he's retired, he blew his brains out. Uh, with a weapon in a park in London. And of course, René uh, Thierry de Magnon, the uh, aristocratic feeder fund manager, lost all of his European royalty and people like that money uh, as he after he shipped it to Bernie. He, he slid his risks um, about three weeks, actually almost very similar, no, 11 days, I think, after Bernie's arrest in his New York City office. He was from Paris. And, and the sad part, of course, loss of life is, is terribly sad and suicide is horrible. Anybody who's had it happen in their life or in their family or in their friend's family can, can relate to that. And so here you have this crime that in, in the case, you got roughly 3,500 people wiped out. You've got $60 billion worth of value that we thought we had that actually doesn't exist and tremendous uh, pain and suffering. I mean, it's it's an extraordinary crime on 
I don't know, you tell me pretty much every dimension. Yeah, and by the way, that 3,500 number, that's the SIPC trustee's stupid definition of net loser, right? If you lose your money um, with Bernie, but you took out more, he calls you a net winner. Chris, if you're left with zero, I don't think you call yourself a net winner. 3,500 is just the net losers. A lot of that that rest also lost everything. They were just liable for money that they didn't have to give back. Um, So it's a bigger number than 3,500. Well, and of course, um, if somebody shows up from the government at your house or my house right now and says, hey, um, you made this investment 15 years ago and uh, it was bogus and all your gains on it were bogus. And so uh, you owe us $5 million. No, that, by the way, that happened too in another way. Bernie was, most of Bernie's stuff was short-term trading, right? So you made that you made what you thought was that million dollars over five years. You paid taxes every year on that money, on fake gains. You paid real taxes. So you're paying your taxes on your gains, and then and, the money's out there, and you don't have any money. And you don't have any money. And then the government shows up and says, "Oh, and then you owe us the money that right. you had these." I mean, yeah, it, you it, took it, yeah, it, you you took these phony profits and you put them in your you took them at home, you know. So you owe us that money back, uh, through, and it's no fault of your own. I, I didn't know, no, and in no. some of the cases of these investors, of course, they didn't know they had money with Madoff. You know, we have an we have an investment advisor. We buy all sorts of shit. I, I don't know what most of the shit is. It's his job to do that. I, what do I look at? I look at our returns, right? I mean, yeah, of course, I go through the portfolio. But the reason some of us have an investment guy is because we don't want to watch CNBC all the time, right? And so the reality is, if you said to me, um, you know, what what mutual funds do you own? What hedge funds do you? I don't. I don't know. I mean, I might know a couple, but. There might be 10, 15 that we own that I have no idea about. And, you know, in fact, um, I went to Tufts University. Ezra Merkin is one of the sleaziest of the hedge fund guys. He, Tufts lost 20 million with him. He did not even tell most of his investors that the money was with Bernie or that all the money was with Bernie. They thought it was with other stuff. And what he did, and he he totally misrepresented um, to those who did know what Bernie was doing. He did not. Add, he did. He he said it was distressed securities, uh, debt, blah 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 blah. Nothing to do with Bernie's split strike conversion strategy, which is an equity strategy. So he wasn't telling some people, and he wasn't telling them. And, and the people that did know thought that he had money with five different funds or three different funds. Right? I'm diversified. Right? I'm paying you to diversify. I'm not paying you to put all my money in one fund and it might blow up in my face. So he wasn't telling them they were diversified. He wasn't telling them they were Bernie. The ones he was, he wasn't representing what Bernie was even saying Bernie was doing. He didn't go to jail either, by the way. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. How many of the guys who did this, who we, we as, as retail investors, we pay them to do, there's this thing called due diligence that maybe some yeah. of them never heard of, right? Yeah. Oh and they're God. supposed that's to just, be that's with rapid. with me. Right. You're supposed to be with a reputable firm. You're doing business yep. with Schwab. You're doing business with right. uh, Morgan Stanley, with Oppenheimer, with whoever you're doing business with. And so we trust them to do that. And of course, in this case, not only did they not diversify, they didn't tell us and they didn't do the fucking due diligence. Totally. Uh, you know, that's the other thing. I, I had the naive assumption that these 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 brilliant, high paid Wall Street guys, when they say our job is due diligence, right? We're going to take your money and we're going to find the best fund for it. I thought due diligence meant some legal 
thing that, you know, mumbo jumbo, I take these eight steps. It turns out it's marketing bullshit. You don't have to do anything. anything. The words are meaningless. Words are completely meaningless. Now, one of my reform recommendations is the due diligence ought to have some criminal standards, meaning these steps should be taken. And if you don't do it, you're criminally liable. Right. And and as part of due diligence, there should be this thing that we heard during the financial crisis, stress testing. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Well, also, Chris, if if you if there's this thing called due diligence, you shouldn't be able to say, well, Bernie didn't let us do it. So we couldn't do it. You know, which is what some of them said. J.P. Morgan said that. Yeah. Well, you're J.P. Morgan. You're supposed to be telling him what to do. (laughs) I know. It's just mind blowing. Well, Bernie won't let us do due diligence. (laughs) (laughs) So so there you are in, in Greenwich. And uh, you're you're taking uh, Ruth Madoff out for lunch for the first time, and she's scarfing down her salad. Um, what, what's it like to walk into a restaurant with uh, with Ruth Madoff? Well, it is. It, it's it, first of all, it's winter, right? And she walks in with sunglasses on, which is a little bizarre for winter. And then with the, I think it's, or I don't know whether it's before noon, but I don't think there's anybody else in the restaurant. She sits down and she doesn't take her sunglasses off at first. So I'm saying she obviously does not want to be recognized by anybody because she's highly recognizable. She's very striking looking. Um, and um, but then she t- takes them off and she loosened up uh, pretty rapidly. And I don't know why she, she had instant trust or why Andy did with me. I don't know. But it's right away. And, and, and you know, she seemed very um, credible to me and all, all of that. And she's very nice. And she took a liking to me to the extent that she she was at that point trying to be more and more estranged from Bernie, having come out of the cult. And uh, so wasn't really wanting to deal with him. She claimed he was emailing her and calling. She wasn't doing that. But she was facilitating everything. She contacted him. She put us together. When the warden cut us off, she kept us going. All of this, and she she was in favor of the book until the contract was signed. And then she didn't want to do the uh, talk anymore, which I think was related to the compassionate early release she was trying to get it. So it wasn't in their interest. And so she just cut off communications. But all of this she facilitated. I don't know why, again, you know, why the family would have trusted me like this. Um, I do know that when they watched the CBS, uh, they haven't seen the book, right? Nobody has seen the book. Uh, Nobody knew what conclusion I came to. Catherine, I was going right up at the end when I was looking at, at Andy and there were some big question marks. I was going at her back and forth. But she didn't know how I resolved it, and um, no, so they didn't get to see it. So they watched the CBS Sunday morning um, interview where um, and Jim Axelrod. He, they taped me for two hours, right? And Jim asked me the question, and I said, "I'm not answering that, Jim. We don't want to do that. We want to keep that open for the book sales." Blah blah blah. I turned to the producer and I say, "Okay, so I'm not answering." And uh, obviously, he said, "You know, you got to answer the question for us. You know, there's six billion people, and it's a big deal." So. Catherine told me that literally they were all the families were watching. Her father was giving her play by play as I was as it was coming over the screen. Ruth Madoff's lawyer called me afterwards to say the family's very happy with what you said. Um, which, by the way, if you read everything I said, the family's not going to like a lot of it. Okay, and the fact that Ruth was charging fifty seven thousand dollars on the corporate credit card has gone. When that came out in an interview I did, and this is how the media works, it surprised me. The tabloids all over Europe made that headlines for articles. No one called me. 
to get the context or whether it was accurate. It all said Jim Campbell, business analyst, business journalist and all this stuff. But that story went all over the world. So the family's obviously not going to like that. It makes Ruth look very bad. But they were happy, apparently, that I had said on the interview that I did not think they, uh, she was complicit. Um, and by the way, they've now, they've now taken a book to her. So she's got the book uh, in her hands. Yeah, I, I I don't know if I heard heard you talk about it in an interview or maybe I read it somewhere that you had gotten her a copy of the book and you know and you'd sent her a, a note about it and, and so forth and you know she's got it. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes. I don't know if I don't know if I I, I'm, I don't know what interview I've said that in, but yeah, what happened was her lawyer called me um, to say what the family had watched it and I said, well, you know, I I text I text Ruth still right, but she doesn't respond. And I said, you know, I, I just like some, you know, closure. Could I, you know, could I give it to her? Could I talk to her? Um, and he said, you know, it's right now it's very tough because of Bernie had just died, right? She, he said, let me talk to the family. And she came back. They will take a book. You can sign it, send it to me, and I'll promise to get it to her. So that's how it happened. Yeah. And, and just I don't know if of, she'll ever read it. Oh boy, I'd love to know that. Uh, and just to jump to the chase... Um, or ju- jump to the answer, uh, you, I don't know if there's many people in the world who have investigated this topic more than you, <laughs> and you believe that Ruth and both sons did not know about the scam, did not know about the AS400 with the bullshit on it. Right. I, did not, they, I do not believe that they knew about it or were complicit in any way. Now, again, I differentiate that from the family pilfered the verb as a piggy bank, that, like that 57000 That didn't mean Ruth knew it was a Ponzi scheme. She didn't. But is it right to charge that much, even though it's a private firm? You know, uh, and, you know, he was buying houses for staffers for $2 million. He bought houses for staffers for $2 million two months before the thing went out of business when there was no money. So uh, there's a lot of ugliness there. But I do not believe they knew it was a Ponzi scheme. And in fact, the... F- the witless idiots who worked on the 17th floor, including Frank Pascali, who knew more than anybody, did not know it was a Ponzi scheme. The SEC did not know it was a Ponzi scheme. Nobody knew it was a Ponzi scheme except for Bernie. And, and so it boggles the mind what that must mean for him to pull yeah. it off, right? So, you know, they're producing statements on the 17th floor. There's an AS400 from the Nixon administration, right? Yes, yes. 1980s. (laughs) I'm exaggerating for effect, but, you know, I'm a marketing guy. Not much. That's Jimmy Carter, (laughs) you know. And so... Reagan. uh, Yeah. So so we've got this ancient IBM uh, AS400, and there are thousands of people getting statements, yes? And each one of them on it has a series of trades. I bought GE at this and sold it at that and yielded this and et cetera, et cetera. I mean, anybody who's ever looked at a stock trading uh, account uh, update from from their iBank, there's a lot of detail in there. And so does that mean he's spending all this time sitting in that little room with the AS400 dreaming up all these fake uh, account updates for his, his clients? Not Bernie. <laughs> he, uh, he had, you know, Frank D. Pascali's team doing that, all, all the fake statements and allocating everything out. Uh, and he had his right-hand woman backdating trades for the big guys. The big guys did their own deals, right? So they were just, you know, I, I'm getting 36% this year. So she manufactured all the backdating and fake trades for that. And then for all the feeder fund customers, the thousands of people, they got all the fake AS400 trading 
uh, done, which essentially was just saying, you had, Chris has $250,000 in his account, so we're going to give him uh, $550,000 units of these fake packages we're buying, which started off being all the individual stocks and then ended up being index, um, S&P 500 or S&P 100 index. So yes, you would get a statement that looked like you bought 50 stocks all laid out and in the envelope, which isn't really how statements work, because you know, when you get a trade, they send you the confirm at the time of the trade, right? Bernie stuffed, because they did the printing once a month out of the fake printer, all the confirms in the statements, they'd be beautifully, neatly, chronologically laid out, right? And then the fake statements, which listed all your, you know, your security assets. So if people would look at this and say, my God, this is so well organized. It's so meticulous. It's beautiful. Look at all these stocks. It's, it's just amazing. But he slipped up on the little stuff, too. A lot of the, uh, those little fake confirms, if you'd looked at the dates, they didn't match dates that the exchanges were open. Or I'm passing on the fees, Jim. I'm only doing this for commissions. I'm not getting asset management fees. Well, Bernie, why does the confirm have the uh, commission box empty? You know, so that, you know, it was it was meticulous, but there were a lot of little slips in there that could have been exposed. And, you know, you I tell you, catch it all. And so how uh, many people inside the company were participating in the fraud? Well, downstairs, you it, it was all on the 17th floor and right. it was a very small number of people. Frank had a staff of, um, you know, three or four. There were two women who did key punching. There were two computer guys who programmed all the fraud. There was the right hand, uh, his right hand administrator, Annette Bongiorno, um, and Bernie. It was really a very small crowd. When I first started off, right, I couldn't get, I had to get by Bernie. How did you do this by yourself? How did you print out hundreds of thousands of fake trades and statements? And, and by the time I was done, you could see how they did the whole thing. You didn't need very many people. And they were witless. They didn't know what they were doing. You know, now after a while, they could not have been stupid enough to know they were doing a lot of illegal stuff. But none of them knew it was a Ponzi scheme. In fact, Annette Bongiorno, to me, the the greatest, one of the most practical ways of seeing how compartmentalized Bernie was at a level anybody can understand, on the legitimate floor, his secretary made $125,000 with no IRA. The woman who had the same job on the 17th floor, high school education, not bright, made in her final year $670,000 and she had a $58 million IRA. And basically they held the same job. One was completely honest and Madoff wanted that. And one was would do whatever he wanted and he, and he needed that. That's the best way to view it. How could one person be hiring, you know, the same kind of indiv- the individual he needs? I need an honest person. I need a crook, you know, and I'm going to manage them both. And I'm going to pay them. Appropriately. Yeah. <laughs> and so so you spend this time with Ruth, uh, you have lunch, you begin to build a relationship with her, and there comes a time um, where she decides she's going to introduce you to Bernie. Um, right away, pretty me, much. Maybe, yeah. So maybe walk me through that and then your first uh, couple of interactions with him and, yeah. and we'll maybe go from there. The, the process has to first she has to tell recommend that Bernie talk to me and as you as you may have known in that in the first letter he sent me he says my wife and Andy have vouched for you even though Andy didn't speak to him so that either that was a lie or it went through Ruth um, and I, I so I want I would like to talk to you to help you can help dispel all the myths that are out there about this whole thing in other words I'm gonna come in and save his legacy 
that what has to happen is Bernie has to approve that he wants to talk to me and the prison has to approve it to get into the prison email system. So that took several weeks, I think, by the time it was done. And then we're off to the races. He, we just start, you know, he, I start asking him any single brutal question I want and he fight, and he comes back with it. And this just, it, it just went, went on. And so he was very um, uh, charismatic, very nice, low key, um, brilliant total recall. And um, so that's how we started. Now, remember, I don't know the other, I don't know how much of what he's telling me is true or not, right? And he's explaining how brutalized he's been by the trustee and Sipic and how these big four guys are total crooks and screwed him. And JP Morgan obviously knew what was going on and covered up. He's telling me all these stories, right? And I don't know what, you know, I'm, I, so I'm assuming that well, I'm going to, you know, he's probably telling the truth about these other, all this other stuff. He's honest about admitting the Ponzi scheme. So, and I, you know, so, but I got to go out uh, and, and vet all this stuff. And, and, and remember the whole time he's telling me this didn't start till um, 1992. And uh, as I told you at the start, well, obviously I assume I go in saying, okay, Bernie, you have this legitimate business. It's proven success. It's worth $3 billion if you sold it. So something went wrong. And you made a gambler's error to double down. And I'm going to get it back. No one will ever notice. The money will be back and everybody's not. And bingo, I'm back to Mr. Integrity. That would have made logical sense, right? Completely illegal. And isn't that what a lot of scam artists say? They say, look, you know, things got a little exactly. sideways. The economy got bad. I made a mistake. Yep. We had to cover yep. this thing. So, yep. so we sort yep. of... Yeah. nuzzled up to the gray line here and did a little right. thing, but we thought we were going to fix it next week. And then the next week didn't happen and blah, 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 yeah. the whole thing unravels. That's sort of the story that we get told on these kind of things. Exactly. It's the story we get told. The story we get told. Now add on to it, the big four. So he told me a, this story that he's never told the public. Okay. His, his, I asked his attorney, remember he waived attorney client privilege. I asked Ike, did you hear this story? I could never heard it. I could heard an even stupider story um, that Bernie tried to sell him. And so I have this story that nobody else has. And the big four are the evil, right? They, they screwed him and left him holding the bag and he wouldn't go out. He didn't want to screw his French counterparties. And so I'm hearing this evil big four and the cards, we got to get, you know, we got to go after the big four. They're the guy, you know, all that kind of thing. And so, and then that, that was the whole story as I went along. And then of course I did all my independent, you know, uh, vetting the, by this time, the SEC, SIPC, the, the, the Southern, the, um, U S attorney for the Southern district of New York, all have done all their investigations. So I have all of that work. And then of course my own, you know, vetting. So, um, you know, so you ended, you end up two, you know, whatever it is, two or three years after Bernie and I were talking, beginning to see how it all falls apart. And so in the end, do you buy the story that he was an integrity guy in the beginning and he just did this, he, 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 he you know, he's trying to cover up a mistake, exactly the story that he told, or uh, is it more nefarious than that? Uh, it's unfortunately more nefarious. It, it, it's, it gets back to what I call unfathomable. He's building this business. It started in 1962, right? And he has only 20 clients or so. And he and he's not even in the he's in the uh, hybrid uh, convertible securities market. And he ends, you know, he finds these little niches and he does a brilliant job of creating innovative uh, strategies and back office efficiencies. 
okay, which is, it, Wall Street, if you know, in the 60s was almost shut down because of back office. So he starts realizing that he's got these 20 these investors and he goes, you know what? I'm really good market maker. I can, and I'll help these guys want me to help manage their money. Some of them said, Bernie, can you do something? And I think what happened in his mind is the market making business, he's making money on commissions. If the market's up or it's down, he runs it. Great cost controls, great leading edge technologies. And um, he's making money no matter what. And he's, he's stealing business from the New York stock exchange. He goes over here. Well, then I, you know, I can do the same thing over here. Oh my God! Wait a minute. I don't make money on every trade. All of a sudden, I can lose money. Oh my God! My clients, I can't, couldn't deal with losses. And he was a people pleaser. He said he was the go-to guy. Chris, you want you you need me to make money for you. I'm going to make money. I'm going to deliver. What do you want? I'll get you one eleven percent guarantee. You know. So he got into a business that psychically he could not deal with, and his ego wouldn't let him say the simple thing would have been said. Here's your money back. I'm out of this business. I'm just going to be a market maker. And that's what you and I would have done, right? And uh, hopefully. Um, and it's just mushroom. And he could never get out of it. This brilliant guy had no exit strategy. Think about this. It's 2008, right? The world is collapsing. The, the, the global economy may collapse. The market's down 40%. Your clients think you have $60 billion. Wouldn't that be a brilliant way to say, oh, Sorry, 40% of it evaporated. So suddenly he's not having to cover so much of this gap, right? And, oh, I'm not going to give it back right now because it's everything's going wrong and everything. And, you know, find ways to whittle his way out of it. Never did that. It's funny that you mentioned that because I thought about that as I was reading your book. It's like, well, the financial crisis is what got him. Yes, yes. But couldn't he have... Did he even make an attempt to use the financial uh, crisis as a way to say, hey, it's not $65 billion, it's some meaningfully lower number, and that's why I don't have your money? Now, remember, in Bernie's mind, nobody knows that $65 billion number. It does not, it's not out there. So Bernie doesn't feel that the world knows this, and he's obviously trying to keep it going until he, he decided in the last month when it was going to, it was going to blow up and he was just going to try and take the fall himself. But he was, he never admitted to being more than, he, he got up to 16 billion, he admitted, right? And uh, he, he, before that it was under wraps. He told me that, by the way, there was never more than $6 billion, 5.9 to be exact, in that JP Morgan account that was supposed to have $65 billion. 5.9 billion was the max. Wow. And so um, he pulls this off for an inordinate amount of time. He, he stick handles around re regulators. Many clients look at the returns and, and he's clearly defying gravity, but yeah. uh, he's making everybody money. So fuck that. Um, we'll, we'll take it and not ask too many questions. But then the financial crisis hits and, you know, countrywide commits their massive uh, mortgage crimes and everybody else doing that. And, yep. and Lehman starts to shake and goes down. And so take me into sort of how this all unravels. And then of course, how he explains the unraveling to you over, is it, is it 400 letters? Am I remembering that number? Right. It's 400 pages of communications, 400 pages. Yeah. yeah. I'm trying to think how much now is the truth versus when you say, how did he describe the unraveling? What, what he, and uh, what he said he was going to do, was that um, 
he picked a return of money, right? That he was owed a uh, hedge fund in, in uh, Europe called Optima of $250, right? That they were taking out of the fund. And he picked that looking out right before Christmas. And he says, okay, we're going to cover this thing up between now and then. I'm going to come clean to my family and I'm going to go to Ike Sorkin, my lawyer, and find out how I turn him in. Because Bernie the control freak, he wasn't going to be marched out of the uh, out of his office in front of everybody. He was going to decide when this thing was coming down. And so he got his Sammy the Bull Gravano, the chief fraud perpetuating officer, and they spent hours and hours reviewing the scenario. This is what we're going to do. And um, it got close to the uh, – as it got close – Bernie ran out of ran out of psychic ability to control it. He was starting to have a nervous breakdown, and he sandbagged Frank. <laughs> Frank was going to be Frank was going to have the whole thing cleaned up, and um, before before they defaulted on this thing. But obviously, um, you know, and Bernie bags it. He never got around to telling Ike Sorkin, you know, what happened until he called Ike from FBI downtown headquarters where he was padlocked to a chair. After Ike got off the phone with Bernie, he still didn't know what Bernie had been arrested for. He did tell his family that. He just really couldn't come clean in an authentic no, way. No, no, no. He did. So he did confess to his family finally that afternoon. Um, and the boys disappear right away. Bernie, it's the night of the annual Christmas party, which is a big deal at Bernie's firm. After he's confessed, the boy, Mark collapsed. They, they went, you know, turned him in. Ruth is in shock. They both went to the Christmas party as if nothing had happened, and stayed and stayed for a while. <laughs> it's, you know, you've 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 called him a sociopath. Uh, some have called him a psychopath. But th- that that's insane behavior. <laughs> it is. And by the way, you I, you I used to say I call him a sociopath. I do not believe it's that black and white because. He ran the legitimate business truly like a family. And you were, if you, ha- he paid for your honeymoons. If you had um, sudden medical problems, they paid for it. Now, obviously, at some point, that became other people's money, right? So it's not as charitable if I'm stealing your money. But he would, you know, his, uh, Andrew might come in and say, you know, I went to college with Chris. I want to get him into your fund. And Chris knows I run the market making business, so I'm a you know I'm a hot show and I'm Bernie's son. Bernie would often say, "No, I'm not letting him in," and the boys would be humiliated because they're supposed to be running the business and they can't get people into their father. And those were slight examples where Bernie didn't want to destroy somebody. And so you got to there's got to be a little bit more than um, you know a, a total killer. Yeah, and this is the other thing that emerges through your discussions with him in the book is there's this weird ethos of some kind. And I, I can remember years ago, you know, uh, um, hearing this about Jeffrey Dahmer, that he had some weird sort of uh, ethos where he thought some of what he was doing was the right thing. And so tell me about sort of, you know, sort of the <laughs> the armchair shrink view of him. I mean, you have had a view into his mind, into his thinking. Yep. You pushed him back. You've challenged him. You said, well, yep. uh, you know, yep. and so... Uh, what is Bernie Madoff? All right. The first thing is Bernie has no insight into Bernie. He made the famous statement with me, Jim, even Madoff doesn't know why Madoff did it. And I would say, Bernie, aren't you Madoff when you say that, you know? And the thing that's interesting is they told him his prison shrink told him it was compartmentalization. So 
Bernie heard that as a uh, as like as an outsider, and so obviously you have to start with what kind of a mind can run you know an ethical and a criminal enterprise at the same time and keep everybody in the dark on both sides, and how can you do that? And obviously, and and function. Obviously, you have to have something in your mind with walls that are blocking it up. And interestingly, the securities business fits his mind. If you know the business, you have to have all these Chinese walls blocking information from flowing so you don't have insider trading and things like that, which is exactly how he wanted to run the business, right? No one is getting information from here over to here. I've got to keep it back. You're going to stay in your box. You're only going to know that you're backdating trades. You have no idea why you're doing it or, or that it's part of a Ponzi scheme. So that's the first thing is it genuine, genuinely compartmentalizing everything and how you do that. I don't know. The other thing is, or is as you move forward here, it was not based on greed, which is what you would assume it would be. Jeffrey Pickhauer, who stole seven billion bucks, the real winner, total greed. But Bernie controlled the man, the man, the wizard, the people pleaser. I have to be able to deliver what everybody, which is why, by the way, he doesn't show remorse to what you'd expect because. Chris, you were the one pressing him for all these fake returns. You probably knew something was going on. You're a mean guy. You're the bad guy. I'm a good guy. I was helping you out. I made a lot of people money. And that's how he viewed it. And the big four, you're, for, you're, you're extorting me. You're putting a gun to my head. I'm the good guy. And, um, okay, so he can't accept losses. It wasn't because of greed. It was because he's a control freak. And when I say control freak, he got down to the point of using sex as a control device. In other words, sex with some clients because it would keep everything in control, not for lust or anything. And stuff that I didn't even put in the book that would be kind of mind-blowing. Like what? (laughs) Something that would, you know, just the degree to which he would have done this kind of a passive-aggressive sexual affair as it relates to a big investor. I I didn't put it in the book. Um, It would be pretty mind-blowing, but for, for two reasons. Number one, I had one direct source uh, and then indirect that I'm sure it's right. And so there's a question mark whether ethically you, you run with one direct source. And the other thing is, would it be gratuitous, um, you know, overkill, et cetera? Interestingly, um, you know, I really liked Ruth, but McGraw-Hill took some of my stories out because they thought they were too mean <laughs> to Ruth. So, um, you know, I mean, they were just mm. true stories. But, and I don't want to, I don't want to push you into places you don't want to go. Okay. The, the thing that's interesting about the sex stuff is it doesn't seem to fit what we tend to hear about with sort of these Darth Vadery type business men who it's just part of the conquest. You know, we just, we like fucking supermodels, right? Or it's a, it's a show offy thing or it's, or it's a drive thing. As a, you know, you and I are guys, we understand like, this is something, this is, this is primordial for, for men, but, and you see these super powerful men, it's just like they're, they're collecting trophies with supermodels or, or, you know, movie yeah. stars or, or whoever, yeah. but that's not what was going on. Best you can tell with Murdy. Yeah, I know you're right. I should clarify a little bit. I, I, I bifurcate his sex life this way. He would do stuff like disappear for massages and stuff. Right. And you know what that's all about. Okay. That was clearly whatever that was stress, whether that was stress management or this kind of, you know, primal behavior you're talking about. And then there, there was a, 
few of these kind of affairs that are linked into the whole control, you know, mind, passive aggressive, you know, kind of deal. Now, one of the, before I knew this, uh, you may know the woman from Hadassah who wrote a book saying she had an affair with Bernie, right? And Bernie managed Hadassah's money, a Jewish charity for women, for girls, basically. But what I was trying to do was make Bernie, I don't care about your sex life, but here's something that looks pretty credible. I want to ask you because I want to see if you can at least tell the truth about it. And boom, false, stalker, never happened. And it clearly did, because if you read the book, she has all of his psychological foibles, the twitches, all that stuff. But he couldn't, could not even admit that. Now, it became, in my mind, a legitimate part of the story when I learned that there was all this kind of control stuff going on. And he told his, he told his secretary, he didn't even like her, the woman. He didn't even, you know, he couldn't stand her. And there he is, you know, meeting her in a hotel uh, room and, um, you know, basically having an affair with her. Well, and he was having these affairs for strategic business reasons, in his mind. I think for control, yeah, ultimately, ultimately for control. And, you know, ultimately, I think, you know, he had these twitches and all these kind of things. It's emblematic that there was an inner turmoil to this guy that he didn't even recognize or couldn't deal with, right? And so he obviously needed some outlets and stuff like that. He was a, you know, he was a child in some ways in, in those lines. There's somebody that I could compare him to, but that, but I don't because I got beat up about it politically. Another guy from Queens who didn't handle loss as well is all I'll say. <laughs> I, I understand. Now, there's another element of this story. You know, there's so many layers of shock, <laughs> but he, you do a great job in the book of of sort of opening this one up, which is. He takes it, you know, most of us are successful by sort of you tap into your 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 community, your tribe, right? That's that's where you start. That's where your first yeah. customers are. Your your dad has a friend or whatever it is, right? It's people that you know when you get going in a new venture. And they're often in your tribe, in your community. And of course, Bernie's Jewish. And yep. and and you talk a lot about, I mean, he destroyed many other Jews, uh, um, uh, foundations and nonprofits, and he broke the code of that community. And, you know, I've spent a lot of time in that community. And, uh, well, I, like you, I'm not Jewish. I spent a lot of time in Israel. And, you know, I have a sense for it. But there is supposed to be an unwritten rule that says Jews don't fuck over other Jews. Yes. And that's because Jews have been thrown out of every place they've ever been in the world, you know. So they're, you know, they're used to that sort of diaspora culture, and so you don't do that. It's unpardonable. And now, and these initial guys were his best friends, his family. It's about an eighty-five percent Jewish affinity uh, uh, crime, by the way. Eighty-five percent of the folks. And um, you know, it's I'm coming in uh, to your Jewish charity, Chris. I'm going to give you two hundred fifty thousand um, dollars, and you go, Bernie. You're awesome. We don't know what we're doing with all this money. Well, give it to me. I will manage it. I won't even charge you anything for it, you know. And it was that kind of a it was that kind of a deal. And um, and then no one understood what he was doing, which is one of the things that always bothered me. I ask, I would ask victims, I would ask people on his legitimate business, what was his? Can you explain his strategy to me? And no one could ever really explain it, even though it's completely simple conceptually. When you, when you go into describing it, if I go into, you know, buying a basket of stocks, putting option wrappers on them for, to protect the downside, paying it by selling 
options on the upside. Even that's not that complex, but you can see how people will get lost. All it boils down to is it's designed to mirror the stock market, okay, or 95% correlation. So therefore, a strategy designed to mirror the stock market cannot by definition go up all the time, right? That's all you need to know. Well, and the other thing is, if that's your strategy, buy one of these spiders that sort of is a, tracks the S&P 500 and Bob's your uncle. I mean, there's a lot of people who say, ah, fuck it, all this, all this hang, you know, haranguing about buying and selling, just buy the S&P 500, yep. take a long-term view, and Bob's your uncle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it, 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 it's, it's just confounding that no one, all these people that gave him their money and trusted him didn't even really know what he was doing. And I don't know about you, but that's not where, you know, you, you really, you really can't give up your money because your dentist, you, your dentist has told you, Chris is a great investor. Give Chris your money. It's, it's, you're going to make 15% a year. And the dentist doesn't know what you're doing. I've listened to the dentist. I don't know what you're doing, but I just sent you my money because the, my dentist has told 50 of his other dentists that you're good. Now, now, fairly recently, if I'm if I'm remembering this right, his legitimate secretary came out and said she thinks Ruth is complicit in this, that she had knowledge, and yet you don't think that Ruth or the sons knew. No, yeah, you know, this is what that's one of the interesting things that happened. That wasn't her coming out earlier. That's from my book. Um, the 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 Guardian. So is the media is, twisting it around somehow? Out of context. The, the Guardian printed that headline, right, which is a legitimate paper. It's the exact opposite, though, of the intent that Eleanor had. Her intent was, I, I think that um, Bernie may have told her something was up either a couple of days or a couple of weeks before anybody else knew. But she didn't know. She wasn't complicit. But the way that that was translated was she knew before anybody else. And in my, for me... If Ruth was, if you read the book in the, the beginning, Ruth was in the building, um, in the office that morning, and clearly something was wrong. She told me she knew nothing about the crime until that afternoon. So if she knew by that morning, she lied to me about that. That would mean that it was not represented to me accurately when she learned, but it's a matter of hours, okay? The belief amongst her, her her close attorneys, et cetera, was that he hadn't told her even then, but he said something big was up because she withdrew $10 million. So whether So she may have known a couple of hours earlier, or you take her word for it, she, she was just told something was up. That story then became she knew in advance. So it, it, was, Eleanor's, it was Eleanor's quote in the book. There's a difference between knowing a, f- a few hours or a few days yeah. or even a few weeks. This went on right. for 40 years. Exactly. And that's why, and Eleanor meant that when she told me that. That quote is from her. It's in the book. But it got painted around the world as Ruth has been outed. And so, you know, as I sort of said earlier, uh, you are m- more than likely the person that's done the most uh, work investigatively on this, certainly as a journalist. Uh, I, I don't know about, you know, inside the FBI or the SEC or anywhere else in law enforcement. And you land on that place that that Mark and Andy. And, I do. And, and in fact, that's a, that's a good point you just brought up. The FBI, because I talked to um, particularly special agent uh, Paul Roberts, um, he told me the kids were complicit and Bernie was training, uh, training them to take over the firm. Right. I know for a fact, that's not true. 
So there, there's the kinds of things that the FBI is making a major assumption that I know is not accurate. But they don't have any way of knowing that's not accurate because the family isn't talking to them or, the, you know, the, the where I was able to basically know that couldn't be true. So um, that's why I say I can come to different conclusions um, than the FBI. Here's another example, the forensic consultant who's a big a source in the book, Bruce Dubrinsky, honest as the day is long. And he's, the, the trustee didn't even want him to talk to me, but great guy. He, he is the one that uncovered all the um, laundering coming through the uh, back door of the legitimate business and put his trading losses. So he's saying, Jim, the boys ran the trading desks. Obviously, they knew. There's $800 million of losses buried there. And how could they not know? So I said, gee, and Bruce is totally honest, straight. I said, Bruce, that looks really bad. You know, I, you know, I'm sure you're right. So I went and did my own investigation and proved that that wasn't right. Now, that doesn't mean that Bruce screwed up. Bruce's job wasn't to figure out whether the, whether where they, where the money was hidden and why it was hidden there. It was to find out what where it was and that it was Ponzi money. But it was not trading losses. They were buried there. But I, I proved they were not trading losses. So in other words, that's an example of where Bruce would say the boys were complicit, but he'd be wrong on the information, just like the FBI would say, based on that assumption, I knew they were wrong. That's the kind of stuff that, that I am going to be the only guy because it's over now, right? And and, and the Bernie's dead and the boys are dead. So I, I, and in sense, that sense, I've lucked out. There's going to be no follow-on investigation likely to my book. And I want, my, one of my goals was, you know, some of my heroes, Bethany McLean and Peter Elkine wrote the book on Enron, The Smartest Guys in the Room, right? James B. Stewart on the insider training. These become definitive works. My ambition as a nobody was to be the definitive Madoff guy. And Jeff Colvin, who writes for Fortune, his um, his his review, the I headline was authoritative. I didn't read the review for three weeks. I took the headline and said, that's all I need. Literally. <laughs> I thanked no, him afterwards. I, look, I, I haven't bad. read all... I haven't read all the Madoff books. Of course, I've read yours. Uh, it, it would be hard to imagine that your book's not the definitive book. You had access that that nobody had, including I the hope. cops. Yeah, and it looks like you did a tremendous amount of work on anything you were told by Bernie or any of the other Madoffs to uh, double and triple check it. At least that's what it appears. Yeah, one of the things I don't know. If, I don't know if I'm a sociopath or not. But um, when, when uh, you can be my great friend, right? But I'm going to be objective about getting to the truth, right? So if you turned out to be my best friend and lied your ass off, I'm going to run with you lied your ass off. And I think that's what, you know, uh, that's why I hope the book will have credibility in the long run, because I didn't bag what Ruth said or Andrew said or, or, or Bernie said. It's the result of vetting the truth. Well, and it didn't feel, as a reader, it didn't feel like you had some kind of an axe to grind with somebody, whether it was the government for fucking up or, or Bernie for being evil or or yeah. Ruth should have known or whatever. It didn't, you know, sometimes you read a book along these, you know, in, in a topic like this, uh, and, and you can feel the author came at it with, a, with an agenda. Um, it didn't seem that way to me. I had a big agenda to get the truth. Um, yeah, no, that's what I mean. Yeah. You're telling me the yeah. story. Yeah, we we knew. Uh, I knew that the system had failed. Um, so, but, but I had no idea how badly it was. Right. So it was all the truth. And as I say, Picard, for instance, I think it's terrible that he didn't see me twice. Right. And but on the other hand, 
I um I went out of my way. I beat him up a lot in the, in the analysis, but I went out of the way to make, not make it personal. And anything that they did well, I wanted to make sure I put in there that was well. It was going to be. It wasn't. There was no personal stuff going on there. Yes. And I don't. And yes. I don't like the guy as a human being because I I, I just think it's irresponsible to take the fees they've taken and not, and not to be accountable for it. You're so successful. Talk to Jim Campbell. You know. <laughs> yeah. Right. Now, you know, the thing I have such a hard time grappling with in my mind is, and you talked about it right off the top, it's front and center in the book. There are these two businesses. One of them looks squeaky clean, incredibly successful, as you write, worth $3 billion at one point. And so why, like, why? Why do this other fraud thing? Like, what is this human drive for more and and in his case, it wasn't. You, you make it very clear you don't think it was greed. And so, was it the ego that comes with prestige? Was it why did he have to build this adjacent business when he was already the man? Right. I um. I th- I think it get, again. It goes back to remember he's starting off his business right, so he's not the big man yet. Um, and he built them basically side by side, right? So you get there right away. You can't say that, you know, there was a reason for it or there was a logical reason or he had a problem, the trade or whatever, that he just found himself in that other business and it didn't fit his temperament. It didn't fit his abilities. And he, his ego was such that, you know, he couldn't do it. One of the one of the reasons that Ruth's lawyers didn't believe that Ruth knew, they knew Bernie would never have been able to con, con, to say. By the way, I'm running this business as a criminal enterprise because the market making business is no longer solvent. That Bernie would never, in his darkest day, have been able to tell that to his wife. You know. Yeah. That by the way, I'm not the Wizard of Oz here. I'm not who I. Uh, I, I I'm a fraud, right? It's an identity exactly. thing. Yeah, I'm an, and I'm so a fraud. I wonder. You know, and again, you you know how much time I spent in shrink school, but you know, I remember with the whole OJ thing, there came a point where the 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 pop psychologist in me said, you know, maybe OJ has told himself this lie so much that he's actually looking for the killers on a golf course, right? Like it's just you know, you can lie, can you lie yourself into a reality essentially to protect yourself? from the fact that you're a fraud. And so I, I, I just wonder about that with Madoff, right? Did he, did he get to a place where even though he knew clearly it was a fraud, but almost like OJ, he could believe there were other killers? Um, I think he would get as far as saying, I'm a product of the corrupt culture of Wall Street, which is what he said. There's unbelievable bad stuff going on in these hedge funds particularly offshore. I've got these greedy, Jim, you will never understand what it's like to manage somebody's money, he told me, unless you have all these rich people and how bad they are and how evil. And he lists all these big names, right? And he, I, I think that he convinced himself that, not that, he was, that he was, there was no Ponzi scheme going on. He convinced himself, though, that he's not a bad guy and that he's doing what everybody else is, is doing. And everybody else expects him to deliver. I think that's where he totally deluded himself. 
right? I think he knew there was no money in the account and that he was stealing it left and right and, and giving it to the wrong people and all that. But I'm not sure that I'd go as far as OJ. Um, OJ, I, I would suspect uh, that OJ might have been able to pass a lie, a lie detector test at some point, right? Because, he, you know, he's done that so deeply. And so is it maybe more like a, a Lance Armstrong? Because it seems like, and I don't follow him very closely uh, since the scandal came out and he finally admitted guilt, but it seemed like if I remember back to the what the kinds of things Armstrong said, he sort of said, hey, yeah, I was a bad guy, but everybody else was too. And so if I wanted to succeed, I had to do this. Everyone else did it. And so I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm not a bad person. I'm a product of a bad environment. Right. But, you know, uh, you got to you got to nail Bernie on this. Remember, coming clean never happened. He went to his grave saying there was no Ponzi scheme until 1992. And then I, and then my my big customers screwed me. I got forced into it. I couldn't get out of it. And, and as Bruce Jabinski said to me, he says, Jim, why didn't he what? Why? Shit. Why didn't he say it was a Ponzi scheme from the beginning? Everybody knows now. Nobody cares. It's over. Why can't he even come clean now? He never came clean. And neither is OJ either, for that matter. So he just never could could um, accept responsibility. And on the sociopath thing, is it is it because he had no empathy? I mean, what did you learn about his personality in yeah. all of those communications? I'm convinced the lack of remorse is related to, do you know how a, a lot of narcissists, and again, I'm not going to name names, see themselves as victims for everything? I'm the one yes. that's, you know, and I think that's why he lacked empathy. Oh, you're in my fund. You didn't have enough money. That's your fault. I mean, you know, you shouldn't have been in my fund. You're supposed, you lied to get into my fund. You're supposed to be a high net worth investor. Okay. So when well, didn't he blame you. his investors for not doing due diligence and figuring out he was a crook? <laughs> Yes, he blamed. He told me, "Listen to this. Listen to this delusion, Jim. I warned these people. There's risk with a market-based strategy, including fraud." <laughs> He's saying he warned them of fraud risk, and they still came in. Like, hey, just so you know, Jim, if you do business with me, I might be a fucking criminal. You need to know that yeah. right up front. <laughs> That's exactly right. And, and you're stupid. I mean, no, so you're no. But it's so insane, right? Because. Don't we want to live in a world where you and I do business and the assumption that you give me and I grant you is we're not criminals, right? So it, it's, it's so insane. Yeah, yeah. Go, back to, go back to OJ. OJ used to say, I was a battered husband. She abused, you know, she would punch me. She would hit me. Um, you know, no, she was out running around screwing guys. You know, I'm OJ. Think about that. He basically almost cut her head off and it's her fault. And so there is a fascinating thing about these uh, giant egos. Giant narcissists. Um, narcissists and their victims. They're all victims. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, when you rip off $65 billion of people, how the hell can you be a victim? <laughs> <It's> just, you <laughs> well, they were all evil, shitty people who didn't do yeah, their exactly. due diligence, yeah. Jim. <laughs> they should have known better. What, yeah. Basically what he was saying, you know. I mean, he, he'd say these these Fairfield Greenwich guys—they're they're total scumbags. They're lying. They're they're saying. I said, Bernie, you told them the lie. You you gave them the lies. You scripted them. <laughs> of course, they lied. <laughs> they they, you, they wouldn't get into your fund and get all those little fees you're throwing them unless they told your lies. Yeah, and you were paying secretaries six hundred thousand dollars a year to make <laughs> sure that they keep perpetuating lies. 
It's unbelievable. It's a great, it's a great story, isn't it? It's incredible. Um, it really is. And it, it's, it's such a cautionary tale. Before we sort of get to what you think the key learnings that you hope the world gets out of this, is there anything else about Madoff himself or the family that you want to share that's either in the book or not in the book? Other than that, it's just such a Shakespearean tragedy that they did have good boys and uh, Ruth is basically a good person. And Bernie, you know, in so many ways was a good person building this business from scratch and uh, running running it like a family. And it was so needless. He didn't need to do it. He didn't need the business. And it is a damnation of, of you know, if we talk about lessons learned. This this country has become sort of a captive of special interests and is not driven to do the right things for the public that it should to be. I mean, let's be honest. Wall Street is, screws its customers a lot of the time. The SEC is not protecting people from fraud. CIPIC is not paying people back necessarily when they're the victims of fraud. And you look at Bernie Madoff and, and the, the story that everybody tries to sell on the on the, you know Wall Street, the government side, this is one guy. This is a bad guy. This is an evil guy. This is the Ponzi scheme to end all Ponzi schemes. No, it's the system that's screwed up. Bernie was part of that. Well, and uh, it's interesting how this conversation is now happening in our country, right? People get angry if you use the phrase systemic racism. Yeah. They want to say, oh, bad, bad apple. Oh, we had a bad apple. Derek Chauvin was a bad apple, yeah. right? And look, are there quote unquote bad apples? Yes, there are evil human beings and, and no system can protect from every form of evil. And things like this are an absolute failure of the system. I, I, I don't know how you can interpret them any other way. You can't, especially when it's something that could have been solved in five minutes in, in three different ways I can kick off my head right now. So, uh, you know, somebody was willfully blind for a long time. Bernie couldn't believe how, he, you know, I told Bernie couldn't believe he got away with it for so long. He expected he was going to get caught. Yes. Oh, yeah. I told you uh, on the DTC thing alone, he expected to be arrested over the weekend at his home. I mean, you know, if I told you to make a five-minute phone call to find out if I'm a fraud, you'd be a complete idiot not to do it. And these were regulators. Well, and here's maybe another question about this. So, like, what does it do to your head? Like, when I go to bed at night, I go to bed with a clean conscience and feeling like I'm generally a good person. And when I make a mistake or screw up, I try to clean it up. I try to be honest about it. I pay my taxes. I don't fuck anybody over. And, you know, I try to be a good person. I'm not perfect. I make mistakes. But, you know, I don't go to bed at night with some big fucking secret. So, so what does it do to your psyche for 40 years when you think the cops might show up at any moment? Yeah, yeah. I don't know how you do that compartmentalizing, how you do that, right? How you can your brain can function. But I can tell you from inside the family that people that, you know, that really have great insight into him, they think that he liked secrets, having secrets, crossing boundaries. He was known to it be inappropriate on the trading floor to women, right? But it was his way of seeing how far can I go? Can I go over the boundary? I mean, grabbing the butt of one of his son's women, girlfriend, wife, whatever, I won't go beyond that. That's not normal, Chris. You know, that's what that is, is I got a special deal with you and I now that nobody else knows, you know. And I think there was some of that stuff going on. Now, the people that are very cynical will say, Bernie loved this whole thing. 
He loves playing with the SEC, running circles, scamming everybody. I don't believe that. I think he was completely stress-ridden. I, I think that he was, you know, uh, you know, a cauldron at all times. But I do think he had he had this, you know, everything was secret. Nobody, I, I kept everybody in separate compartments, and there was something about that that that, that allowed him to function. And he did get off on to some extent. I do not believe that he was sitting around just, this is so much fun stealing money and all that. Uh, I think it was tough for him to, to do, keep doing it. But do you think maybe like a drug addict, I'm trying to think of maybe a good analogy that he, there was some cortisol adrenaline hit of living on the edge, knowing the cops could show up at any time or was there yeah. some, you know, like a skydiving thrill? I think there's some of that just because of the, saying if you assume he did thrive on secrecy you know you don't know that i'm doing this behind you know two floors down and there may have been some of that i i, I don't think it covered up that, that that he was totally stressed out by this thing and he somehow he used to i mean you know that his double life if you read in the book when he was desperate for he was so paralyzed at the end he would have to lie down on the floor and couldn't move in his office but if um Jeff Pickhower showed up, one of the big four. He was like, exactly, come on in. And I got a special, and he did this too. I got a special deal for you. Um, I'm new fund. We've just run it. Only for, it's only, you know, like a used car salesman. He was so desperate. And, um, but then he's back to being paralyzed, staring out his window for four hours. Wow. It's so crazy. <laughs> and then just to go back to Ruth for a second, you know, I just double checked. It looks like she's a 78 or, uh, or 80, something like that. Yeah. And so if, if you're right, and it sure sounds like you are, that she did not know. And she started dating him when she was 13. Is that right? Yes. He was right. 16. Yep. And you, she was in love with him. You, you describe her of having sort of a cult-like, uh, cult leader-like. Yep. An obsessive love. But not a healthy obsessive love, right? I, like, no, I mean, that's why I say obsessive. They they could be like jealous teenagers, you know. She didn't like him talking to other people and the, and all that kind of stuff. She didn't so like him talking were, to other women and all that. Yeah, right? they were deep, deeply, deeply. In, I, it's, it had to be a real partnership. Um, she was totally in his cult, but at the same time, they 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 had these weird insecurities, you know. And, and of course, now you know she's said, I wish I didn't even have his name, you know, kind of thing. Well, and so if you're her, you're, you know, plus or minus 80 years old. If you believe what Andy says, then your husband killed your sons. Uh, she's, of course, uh, financially, um, maybe not destroyed, but nothing like the way she was. Right. And so she's lost her husband. And her two boys, and you know, she's not on the back nine; she's on the back couple. I, I try to, and she didn't know. So this life that she thought was real, this forty-plus year—well, not even forty years—from uh, thirteen to eighty, this reality that was truly her life, mm -hmm. all of it's gone, and the three people you would imagine she loved the most in the world are dead. Like, sort of, do you have any sense for what she might be like now? Uh, I, I obviously, I don't want to pretend, uh, you know, right now when I haven't seen her in two years. But I, I was always struck by 
how resilient she was. I mean, she was worth eight hundred million dollars, right? And they left her with two and a half million, of which half of which five hundred thousand at least went to lawyers. And it was like, I have no problem with that, Jim. I grew up. I, I, I started in Queens. Doesn't bother me. I'm driving a, a used car with dents. I have to report every every expenditure over a hundred dollars to the trustee. And it, it it appeared to be pretty genuine, you know. Now it was very traumatic because the boys immediately dissed Bernie. She did not. And in the boys' minds, she went with Bernie. And that was a huge problem. And that, that eventually worked itself out and was reconciled. But so you think about that trauma too. So the tremendous trauma, traumatization, but unbelievable resiliency. You know, it was like she just went on. Everybody else has died around her, right? The boys have all died, the men. And she's just marching down still. I don't know what her health is now. I don't think it's as well, as good as when she was with me, but I don't know. I have no insight. Uh, I mean, I would bury myself in the biggest vat of whiskey and the biggest bag of Mary Jane you've ever seen and never come out. (laughs) So uh, maybe in completion, um, what has it been like in your life? You've invested plus or minus a decade. Am I getting that about right? I didn't even hit me. Yeah, you're right. From sort of start to, and then of course your books just come out and you've been on CBS and you know, it's your whole, I would imagine your whole world feels a little bit different right now. And so what's it been like to do this for a decade and then have this book come out and have the whole world be talking about your book now? Well, the first thing is, um, well, let's let's do ego first. One benefit of being 65 is that this stuff means shit to me in terms of that, you know? If I was 25, I would have probably been bouncing off ceilings and stuff, right? My wife's uncle called to congratulate me on the CBS interview, and he said, Jim, I've watched it three times. I haven't watched it since I saw it live. And so it doesn't strike me to do that. I don't I haven't read any of the clippings or anything. So none of that stuff is different. But what it, what is nice, and you've already alluded to this, is that I set off in my mind, which would seem like a dream for a guy who's never written a book to say, I want this to be the book that becomes the definitive account of the Madoff story that no one really knows. And it seems like I may have pulled that off. And so that feels really good and makes it, you know, and then the truth come out. And then, you know, I feel very proud or whatever of the, of the way this, the people that have received this book, because I was worried that would have come out. If I said that the Madoff, if they didn't know, that would be the whole story of the book. No one would look at anything else. This guy wrote an apologia. He's he's a fan. You know, it's bullshit. And you know what? I have never gotten that. Most people don't, and, and just like you don't focus on it that much as part of the book, which is exactly where I was. It's not what I consider to be a major part of the book. I definitely want it to be the one guy that did it. And so... People seem to be, as you have, accepting that I've reported the truth, that I haven't sold out, and that it's not a made-off apologia, which it, which if, obviously when you read it, you know it is in any way. But I was worried that some of that superficial stuff might be what I would be answering, and the book might never get its identity over that, if that makes any sense. No, it makes all the sense in the world, and I'm, I'm really glad to hear that, Jim. And I'll tell you why. I, I'm somebody who... Am angered and disheartened by idiotic tweets and Kardashian ass selfies and sort of all the stupidity of a lot of yeah. our modern world. Yeah. And 
what I'm heartened by to hear you say that is it has been my experience that there's a, a, an opposite and equal reaction, which is there are still millions of people who care deeply about substantive topics, who, yes. who want to go get into it, who care about you know, people who uh, authentically put their intellect and their heart and their soul into doing a meaningful piece of work that requires engaging with. Your, your book is not... Yeah, sure. You can read the headline in the Guardian or whatever, whatever. But if you want to get into it, you need to fucking get into it to understand yeah. what's really going on here. And you wrote yeah. that book. And I'm glad that the world is acknowledging that you wrote that book and that the world still gives a shit about substantive work like yours. Yeah, but now that is not, not only is that a great thing, but as you know, in the last couple of years, again, I'm not going into politics. Truth has become almost a casualty in a lot of things, you know. And that's a pretty scary thing. By the way, that's the way society declines. That's why the Soviet Union collapsed. You can't run a country not telling the truth. And this country had been on a path where truth, you know, doesn't that that important all the time, you know? Yes. And I, I love that. Um, I'm a huge Judge Judy fan. And she has this great expression where she says, don't pee on my leg and tell me it's raining. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I got to tell you, I don't want to get, I don't want to get into politics at all. But this, this I find amazing. Representative Liz Cheney, right, who is far to the right of me, is being penalized by her own party because she's telling the truth. She will not stop saying that the election was a lie, or the election was fraud, and or that it was true. And she is going to be thrown out of her job in the House conference because she's not willing to walk away from the truth. Now, forget right, left, Trump, non-Trump. How can that be that a major institutional political party would penalize you for telling the truth? It boggles the mind. And, and the other thing that uh, I appreciate about your work, and which is why I appreciate so much this time you've invested with me, is I think part of why the truth is disappearing is uh, dialogue is disappearing. Real, authentic, curious, questioning dialogue, right? The reason I want you to do this with me is I'm curious. I'm curious about this work. I'm curious about you and what motivated you. And I think it's an important thing for the world to hear. And, it, and, and it's an important thing for me to listen to. <laughs> and so, you know, I think the, there's a big part of this around evangelizing the power of authentic dialogue and and true civil discourse. Well put. And by the way, um, it does. It means an incredible amount, the amount of effort that you obviously put into prep uh, for this. And, and then you talk about substantive. You started in the non-sexy division of this book, which also um, attests to your relief in looking for substantive and what the message that needs to come out of this book you went right after. So um, I don't know how much time you, you spent on it, but it looks like you spent... A, a, a huge amount of time in preparation uh, for this. So, and I, I mean, you wanted to do a long form interview. You got your way. My clock is just hitting two hours. <laughs> well, and thank you for that. I did put a lot of work into it. The, the way you responded to me was incredible, Jim. And I could feel, you know, I don't know what the right word is, but you're, you're sort of, maybe it's an overused word today, but your authenticity in our early communications. And I thought, wow, you know, if this guy is really willing to get into it with me, that would be amazing. And, um, I, you know, I honor the work. And so, yeah, I did my yeah, fucking homework. You.
Thank you. Thank you for reading it. Thank you for everything and then for inviting me. Um, I'm course. not going to get the fun of being able to do two-hour interviews on this book, which I would love to do. So it's a great <laughs> honor. Well, you just got it, and um, and I deeply appreciate it. Is there anything else before we wrap, Jim? Uh, you know, investors, take care of yourself. Don't depend on the government and all the entities. Hopefully, they'll be there for you. But take responsibility for your own investments. Know what you're investing in. Know what you're doing. Don't look to blame everybody else. And um, and, and as you said, uh, honor the truth. You know, walk the right path. One of the things that always was this amazed Eleanor the most is what made people that she was close to that she worked with take the wrong path. Why did she take the right path? Why did somebody else take the wrong path? Try and stay on the right path. It's worth it. Sleep at night. Amen. Hallelujah. Jim Campbell, thank you so much. I deeply appreciate you. You are welcome back anytime, brother. Well, there he is. And Jim Campbell's new book is out. It's called Madoff Talks, uncovering the untold story behind the most notorious Ponzi scheme in history. And I believe this book should be taught in every business school on the planet. I further believe Every employee of every regulatory body that oversees the financial system not only needs to read this book, but should be tested on the details of it. I loved every page, and I think you will too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Madoff Talks. Now, if you're a business owner, you might be running your business harder than necessary. You see, QuickBooks and spreadsheets will slow you down, and you don't have to tolerate that anymore. Now is the time to upgrade to NetSuite from Oracle. Stop paying for all those multiple systems that don't give you the information you need when you need it. And ditch the spreadsheets and the old clunky software that you have outgrown. Now is the time to upgrade to NetSuite by Oracle, the number one cloud business system. NetSuite gives you the visibility and control over your financials, HR, inventory, e-commerce, and more. Everything you need to run a legendary business all in one place. So whether you're doing a million a year or hundreds of millions a year, save time and money with NetSuite. Visit netsuite.com slash different. And today, legendary businesses are digital businesses. And that's where Splunk comes in. Splunk is the leader in data to everything. Splunk lets you build a more resilient organization, accelerate your cloud-driven transformation, and exceed customer expectations. As a matter of fact, the folks at Domino's turned to Splunk when they wanted to reposition themselves as an e-commerce company that happens to sell pizza. The global chain shifted its focus to digital channels and emerging technologies without surrendering the personal touch. Now, you can thrive in the data age, too, just like Domino's. Check out Splunk.com slash D2E. And don't forget, Try Malibu milk today. It is, um, it tastes great. There's a whole number of different products and flavors. It's awesome in smoothies. It's great in cereal. It's great to drink on your own. And uh, it goes well with white, right, with white Russians. <laughs> so check out MalibuMilk.com. Milk spelt with a Y today. All right. We would like to thank Jim Campbell, of course, Thanks, Jim, for such an extraordinary conversation. And more importantly, for dedicating a decade of your life to writing this legendary book, Madoff Talks. My good friends at OneLifeFullyLive.org are the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Uh, My friends at Bottleneck.online are the the, uh, world's first dedicated distant assistant. If you're looking for an assistant... 
who's nowhere near you, but who'll do a great job for you, check out bottleneck.online. And don't forget to go to lockhead.com and subscribe to Category Pirates, uh, the newsletter for people with a different mind. Category Pirates at lockhead.com. Today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes, and this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. All rights do remain perturbed. We are produced and edited by the legendary Jason DeFilippo. He's the GOAT. And his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks, is one of my favorites. Sarah Knox and Jamie J do legendary technical execution around here. Show notes by GM Simon. Remember to spread podcasts, not viruses. Want to say thank you to all of our healthcare heroes. Where would we be without you? Thank you so much. Remember to listen to the Ramones. Lily Tomlin was right. Thank you, Candy Dandy. Love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Christopher Cox former chairman of the Securities and Exchange Commission. Sorry, Chrissy, we just ran out of time for you. That's it. Please stay safe, stay legendary, and until we're together again, follow your difference.